welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. The National Drug Control Strategy, as stated in the latest report by the Office of Drug Control, issued this month, focuses primarily on one overarching strategic outcome, building a stronger, healthier, drug-free society today and in the years to come by drastically reducing the number of Americans losing their lives to drug addiction in today's crisis and preparing now to dominate the drug environment of the future. This will be done by preventing initiates to drug use, providing treatment services leading to long-term recovery for those suffering from addiction, and aggressively reducing the availability of illicit drugs in America's communities. My guest today is the director of the National Office of Drug Control Policy, or ONDCP, Mr. Jim Carroll, who is tasked with delivering that outcome that I just described. So, Director Carroll, that's a tall order. Greg, thank you so much for having me on and letting me talk about really this crisis that's happening in the United States that's impacting so many families. I know you lost your son, Sam, and so many families are out there that are impacted, and that's why we're here. So you had a, the strategic report uh, that just came out this past month. Were there any surprises in that report? I, I'd say some pleasant surprises. Um, the, I've been in this job about two years now, and Really, I've taken the president's vision of bringing together the government to work on this crisis as a whole, from prevention, through treatment, through cutting off the supply of drugs. And what I'm really happy to report is that these efforts are beginning to pay off. As outlined um, recently with our announcement, for the first time in 29 years, we have a 4.1 national average on the reduction of deaths that are occurring from overdoses across the country. And so um, I don't know that I'm surprised by it, but I'm really pleased that we're able to come together, put down partisan politics, and just work together in the communities to make a difference. So one of your goals is a 15% reduction in overdose deaths in the next couple of years. What are the strategies that you'll employ to achieve that goal? I think one of the things that is key to this is prevention, is making sure that we're getting the message out to the youth about the dangers of what's going on out there. Greg, when we were growing up, um, for example, um, marijuana, um, the THC content was very low. Now we know it's very high. They say 10 times higher than oh, it can, when absolutely. we were kids. It can be 10 times higher. But also, you know, kids talked about, you know, oh, we experiment with this or experiment with that. What we have to convey to kids is the dangers of what is out there. We say one pill can kill because it is literally what is happening. The pills, you know, aren't what they seem. Um, and so we have to make sure that they understand the dangers of what can happen. But I think prevention also encompasses 
the prescriptions that are out there and making sure that we are preventing this by educating prescribers on the dangers of writing too many prescriptions when it's not necessary. And so that's part of the prevention plan that we're pushing out as well. Speaking of the kids, one of the goals is to uh, reduce past year use of opioids and illicit drugs by use by 15%. How are you going to tackle that? That seems like a tough one to, to get your arms around. And certainly, once again, a phenomenal goal. The president, again, is very clear on this. We have requested um, through the president's budget um, to work with Congress, and we have more money than ever before going directly to prevention targeted at kids to drive that 15% goal. The Out of my office, um, we directly fund about 750 prevention programs targeting kids 18 and under um, across all states and across the territories, making sure um, that they understand this. This is more money than ever before. Um, obviously, if we had more funding, um, we could reach more communities. But what's important is in these communities, we don't set the exact program that they should follow. Just like every child is different, every community is different. And what's going to work in New York City might not work in rural Oklahoma. So we let these communities come in, tell us how they're going to tackle it. Um, and if we have enough funding and if it seems like a sound plan, we'll make um, a grant to them. It's a five-year grant, so they know there's some continuity and stability there that they can really um, get involved in the communities. That's one of the ways the prevention program, I think, is really going to take hold is getting these out there and spreading that message. So I want to move along to medication-assisted treatment. Medication-assisted treatment today is considered the gold standard. You have that in your report, and I think that's become more and more recognized. Yet only half of our recovery of facilities support that today. You have a goal of reaching 100% in the next two years. How are you going to do that? It, it starts um, at the, and that's, I'll, I'll say that's a very aggressive goal. Um, and I think we've got to push the limits um, ourselves um, to try to do this. We can't, you know, be um, anything other than aggressive. That's what the president wants. So what we're doing is we're starting all the way throughout the continuum. We're making sure, and I've spoken to the American Association of Medical Hospitals to make sure that we're teaching our new physicians, our new prescribers, while they're still in med school, before they ever write the first prescription, um, that they understand the value of MAT, that it really is the gold standard. We're working to make sure um, that the prescribers that are out there, the doctors that exist, understand that they can safely prescribe MAT, um, that their patients, um, regardless whether they're in an urban, suburban, or rural community, um, already are in their waiting room and need help, um, that they should be able to do it more. And then, of course, what we need to do is make sure that people understand that this can help, that this is a way to taper off from opioids, from an addiction, to help them. That being said, while we want to make it 100% available, we have to recognize that there are some people who have an addiction, who do not want to use MAT, that for them, that that's not the way they want to go. So there's a difference between making it available and making sure that they use it. You know, I'm hiring people in recovery, and one of the folks that I hired um, in recovery um, from opioid addiction um, decided that he had to do it without MAT. 
everyone's a unique individual. Um, you weren't your doctor listening to you, um, your concerns. And so we want to make it available. Um, we just don't want to make sure we're pushing something on someone who feels like they need something different. Sure. So analytics. At the end of the day, though, you're looking at analytics and what the numbers prove out. And the numbers prove out that MAT works. And at the heart of it is buprenorphine and suboxone and prescribing that, the ability to prescribe that. We don't have enough physicians that are wavered in our country. And you've got a goal to address that. We do. Um, and that's part of reaching doctors, and as I mentioned, about the importance of letting them know that those patients already exist and they're already in their practice group um, and that, there's, that they can be safely educated on this. I think some doctors are concerned about prescribing MAT, that they realize that there's some risk and that they, those patients need to be managed more closely. And so we're making sure that they are um, getting the training that they need to feel comfortable prescribing. The other thing that we're talking about um, with some physicians is they're thinking that um, that's not their type of practice, that you know, they don't wanna be known as strictly an MAT physician. And what we're doing again is going back to the idea that they're already out there. They're in the waiting room already. Um, we're not talking about devoting your practice, but this is the general you know, continuum of care to provide for patients. What we're seeing are some doctors who initially get the waiver and then don't take, um, don't even have enough patients or accept enough patients to get to the maximum. Um, and so, you know, again, that comes down to prescriber, um, you know, to doctor education, getting them comfortable. But also, you know, what's really interesting is we think that there's about 20 million people in the U.S. who have an addiction of some sort. It's only a few percentage of them that come forward seeking treatment. And so what we have to do is make sure that across the board, if someone is brave enough to stand up and say, I need help, is that we have it available. And I think that will also make more people comfortable with coming in and saying, I need this type of help. I want to come back to that point in, in just a minute here. But before we do, I want to talk just a little bit about the uh, supply side. You have goals for reducing the production of cocaine by 42%, heroin by 25%. And I get that. So by reducing uh, the availability, hopefully we reduce the problem there. But you also have an interesting goal there, and that is to increase the price of those. The two are obviously related. Less availability, you drive up the price. But you, you've actually got targets for cocaine as well as heroin, as well as meth. Interesting. Share the, the thought behind that. I think we need to have specific metrics as to what we're um, really trying to achieve. And again, these are some stretch goals I'm setting there. And I'm, what I have told my staff and what I am telling people is if we're not pushing ourselves to the point of exhaustion, if we're not pushing ourselves to the point that we don't know that we can achieve it, then we're not setting our goals high enough. We need to be, if, if we're hitting every single target, we're not aiming high enough. So we need to push. I've been to Colombia. Um, I've met with president of, and almost all the cocaine in the world, at least comes from that region. Almost all of the cocaine in the U.S. comes from Colombia. Um, I've met with the president of Colombia multiple times. The president is coming to the White House in a couple of weeks. I'll be meeting with President Duque then to talk about the efforts there. But we're investing in Colombia as well. This isn't us just saying, you cut it out, you stop at Colombia. It's part of the economy. 
It's part of the economy. So you have to. We have to. So we're doing and we're investment in them and switching over the farmers to have licit crops. Um, I mean, there's some great agricultural products out of Colombia. You know, we know about coffee. We know about bananas. But there's a lots of things down there that they can do um, that will, you know, be licit. And it also protects these farmers, you know, because a lot of times these farmers in Colombia are growing it at gunpoint. You know, they would rather be doing something else. And so we're investing in the security, making sure that, you know, the farmers out there have the ability to switch and that they're safe to do it. So we're working very hard with them. Colombia is a difficult case, though. You know, they're right next door to Venezuela. The migration coming out of Venezuela is just causing so many problems throughout South and Latin America that we have to make sure, you know, that we're supporting them across the board. And so that's why we, we need to continue to work with Colombia if we're going to hit that goal. That is an aggressive goal. I'm not going to kid you. Let's stay on that topic for a little bit. I'd like to um, dig a little bit deeper with what you're seeing from our neighbors. Uh, you've uh, stated in the report here that there's a much larger variety of new and highly potent uh, synthetic opioids that's now coming on the market. And uh, there's also new marketing and sales techniques that you're starting to see that are making interdiction more challenging. So speak to those. What we're seeing, you know, is these people that are producing the synthetic drugs, they're smart. Um, they know exactly what they're doing. They have the training and expertise to make these drugs. If we're not providing a holistic solution, a holistic ban on synthetic drugs coming into this country, they're able to skirt it by constantly updating the formula and the exact chemical makeup of these drugs. We have an emergency scheduling order in place. Meaning these, since they, they tweak it just a little bit, it's now no longer illegal. Correct. And so we do have an emergency scheduling order in place by DEA and the FDA. Congress recently continued it to make sure that we're keeping up with these new changes that the chemists are using who make these synthetic, incredibly dangerous and potent um, opioids. And so, but what we do need is we need Congress to pass a permanent ban on this to make sure that the mere change of a chemical composition doesn't mean that they can escape prosecution. They know exactly what they're doing, and that's part of the ways that we need to address this. On the marketing side, um, again, you know, they're in this for the money. These, you know, these traffickers are not the people, you know, that are trying, you know, to um, feed their own addiction to a, a drug. They're feeding their addiction to their wallet. They're feeding their greed. And so what they're doing is they are using 21st century technology to market these drugs um, to people, either to get them into this for the first time or continuing you know, to feed you know, their addiction. Internet is clearly you know, uh, a growing place for people to market drugs. If you're looking for them, it's not hard to find. And so, you know, we know about the dark web, but there's other applications that are out there that people are using um, to, because they know the marketers can be very direct in what they're doing. The, on the dark web, you know, the, the traffickers are direct. They're not hiding what they're selling. You'll see, you know, fentanyl for sale by name, cocaine by name. And so we're working very closely with the U.S. Department of Justice to shut down those attempts to, you know, reach consumers really are children. And that's the way we got to think about this in the U.S. with these medications. Um, and this is why it's a whole of government approach using every bit in our arsenal, not just the 
you know, needing the ability to find drugs in the mail or other ways, but also using technology to stop it being sold over the internet. So part of your stated goal is to aggressively reduce the availability of illicit drugs in America's communities. And I'm just curious in terms of your office and how far you're kind of empowered to, to work on that issue. Now, we've talked about, you know, trying to protect our borders from drugs coming in, but how about some of the diversion that's happening today? For example, um, a, a report that uh, just came out the last year. This is a uh, 2019 Drug Diversion Digest report. It reported... 47.2 million doses of lost uh, medication due to healthcare employee misuse and theft in, uh, in 2018. And so what the report goes on to, uh, to talk about is the fact that there's really little in place for diversion control within some of our healthcare providers, within the system there. And so the question is, does your office have an opportunity to play a role in evaluating that and determining what additional controls we can put in place to make a difference here? Absolutely. As the drug advisor to the president to make sure that his goal is carried out, I have the um, opportunity, um, I have the responsibility to oversee the $36 billion that the U.S. government spends on this issue. And that includes oversight of the entire budget of the Drug Enforcement Administration. The DEA um, is charged with the responsibility to make sure this diversion does not take place. They have a specific diversion section within the DEA to address this issue. But we have to, again, go back to the core of this. By There's too many opioids available, too many prescriptions being written. If, you know, if there weren't as many opioids out there, there wouldn't be as many diverted. And that was one of the president's goals when we realized that diversion was an, excuse me, that the number of prescriptions was an issue and diversion was an issue, is reducing those, um, what was written. And so the president set a goal of a one-third reduction um, by the end of his four years. We've already exceeded that. We're about 35, 36% reduction in high-dose opioid prescriptions. We absolutely need to make sure the people who have pain get the medication they need. We're not trying to do that. But what we're trying to do is cut down on these doses for two reasons. One, it means that a reduced chance of someone becoming addicted because they're on a long-term prescription. You understand that with Sam. I have a family member that is in recovery from um, a prescription, two opioids that the doctor kept filling every month until it came to the point of, an, of a dependence. The, and sadly, we know, with, you know, like I said, that you know, I think led to Sam's passing. And so we've exceeded that goal, and that will make sure that less people get addicted, but there will also be less um, diversion taking place because it's simply not there. I talk almost daily with the DEA administrator. Um, I'll be speaking with him again this afternoon, and that's obviously one of the topics that we discuss. DEA had a big um, crackdown on pharmacies and prescribers last year um, in Appalachia area. Um, because of diversion taking place. And I guess my point is, this is an area from reading this report from this think tank, this is an area that not much time and effort has really <clears throat> been spent on this. That's, that's what I, uh, on diversion control within the halls of the healthcare industry, you know, 
within some of these providers, healthcare providers specifically. And what it goes on to point out is 94% of this number was opioids. In addition to that, they say this is just the known. They're anticipating 10 times that is the actual. This is just the people that got caught. So I'm going to leave that report for you. And that's just food for thought. We'll, we'll move on if you'd like. Thank you, Reg. I just want to mention this, and you may not be able to speak to it, but it's, a, it's just a quick thing that seems to resonate over and over again at times. More than 75% of the FDA's budget is paid by the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, many think that sets up a situation where they're actually beholding to the industry. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I've never um, experienced that whatsoever. Um, I talk, you know, daily with HHS, generally speaking, and with the folks that are making sure that these pharmaceutical medications on the opioid side um, are being safely prescribed and being not um, widely available to the point of misuse. I have not seen that. You know, it's through taxes that either you or I pay um, that funds the federal government um, and taxes that these corporations, pharmaceuticals, fees um, that they pay. Licensing fees, yeah. Yeah, yeah that um, help fund the entire U.S. government. This is, you know, taxpayer money and corporate money that is doing this. I've never seen that or sense that whatsoever. Um, you know, the, it's just nothing. I mean, there's no pushback um, when we're talking about safe prescribing, for example, you know, to make sure that doesn't occur. The other thing I do want to mention, by the way, where we're talking about diversion is the ability um, to um, make sure that patients have a safe way to dispose of their unused medication so it doesn't get diverted from the medicine cabinet, that when they're finished, um, there's lots of great um, disposal mechanisms in place. The DEA sponsors take back um, day several times throughout the year, um, you know, across the country to make sure that folks are safely disposing. Includes vaping supplies now. It does. It does. And that was something That's that- big. It was big. And it was something that the DEA realized um, and they were able to respond very quickly um, to be able to accept vaping devices as we've seen the Surgeon General talk about the dangers. And of course, we know from fatalities, the dangers of vaping. Yeah. Pharmacies are giving out deterra bags now too. I know. Isn't that great? Yeah, that is. That's a really good thing. Um, so during the, ep- the opioid epidemic here for more than 25 years, harm reduction measures such as the use of Narcan, syringe exchanges, and fentanyl test strips have become increasingly accepted defenses against the loss of life. This week, the court ruled in favor of opening the safe house, a safe injection site in Philadelphia. Can you share the administration's position on safe injection facilities? Well, let's start at the very at the beginning of, of your question. Um, we absolutely know that um, Narcan is, or naloxone, um, which is the, the chemical itself, that naloxone works, um, that naloxone is, can instantly reverse the effects of an overdose. I was the first government agency to require all of my employees to receive naloxone training, and I carry naloxone with me. Um, Everywhere I go, and same here. The um, and so we're making sure that that is um, available. And with this under this president, um, we have about a four hundred percent increase in naloxone being available. On the um, ability for safe needle exchange, the federal government law um, states that it is absolutely permissible, and we know that it cuts down on the transmission of other diseases that are associated with intravenous drug use. Um, safe injection sites, you might, um, last night, late last night, um, apparently the 
um, application um, to open up such a facility in Pennsylvania was withdrawn. Um, and the federal law prohibits it. It's been the source of much controversy. They withdrew their app. That's what I, I, that's what I heard on the news um, as I was coming to work this morning, that late last night they withdrew their application. Um, a lot of fake news these days, so maybe, maybe it wasn't accurate, but that's what I heard, Greg. The news Director Carroll shared wasn't fake news at all. It turns out, in a matter of hours, Safehouse lost both their support in the community and the lease on their property. For now, the first safe injection facility in our country is on hold indefinitely. There was a report I read last year about one of these facilities in Canada and how it is really, the community was up in arms the community, because these, it was really damaging the neighborhood. But more importantly than that, they had a horrible track record of actually getting people into treatment. This was Insight? And this was in Canada. Yeah. Right. And they had a horrible track record. Of referring, Vancouver, perhaps? I can't remember the location, but, it was a, um, but they really did not have a means to get people into treatment. And that's one thing that with naloxone, you know, what we're able to do with the proper administration of it, you know, by someone, we're able to say, look, you almost you know, died from an overdose. Let's get you in, um, you know, to treatment. Let's yeah. find help. The, um, but with these, um, these places, this is not a place for people to go and um, help get them into treatment. And until the data supports it, I can't support it. But also federal law prohibits it as well. The, and then you mentioned test strips. There is a concern, and I want to make sure that you and everyone understands. We talked a few minutes ago about the, um, how these chemists that are producing these synthetic opioids are constantly updating their formula. The concern with test strips, if you think of that test strip as having a library on it um, to be able to detect these opioids, as the chemists change the formula, the test strips library, if you will, doesn't get updated. And so we can ha- you can have a lot of false negatives um, with a test strip where people you know, will test it and think, okay, it's good to, you know, it doesn't have, you know, fentanyl in it or, you know, some um, a synthetic to the amount that it would be lethal when in fact it does. So there's some real concerns about these test strips only because they can't be updated fast enough. Um, and what we've also seen is, are the test strips themselves being diverted by the drug dealers to be able to test the drugs on the spot and show the person who is just in agony because of their addiction to be able to test it in front of them and say, I've got really good stuff here. Let's test it. I'll show you. It's not, I mean, I understand the concept. We understand the possibility of how it could work, but there's dangers in the way it's applied. Last Friday, I was introduced to a new treatment initiative in Palm Beach County. It's an ER Addiction Stabilization Unit, an ASU. So it's specifically designed for those struggling with substance use disorder. The ASU is open 24-7, and it's available to anyone, anyone that wants help. It features 10 beds where patients are diagnosed and stabilized for 24 to 36 hours before being given a warm handoff to treatment. Something to note, the overwhelming majority of patients do not require inpatient, inpatient treatment under the program. Since its inception, This program has evolved to treat over 600 patients. Now, similar to regional centers of excellence that address conditions such as heart, stroke, or cancer care, 
Palm Beach County now has the, uh, they've propagated this program that uh, is the first of its kind, which is an evidence-based addiction care facility. The question is, how can we take an evidence-based practice like this and propagate that through our nation? Isn't it phenomenal? Um, I visited and heard about these in a couple of locations we, um, around the country. We definitely need more because, again, that's the situation where they're in a hospital. They've been brought in sometimes right because they've been overdosed and naloxone was given um, to them and they were revived. That's the opportunity when they're willing to get treatment because they realize what almost happened. And so the idea of having more hospitals, having a stabilization unit where they can hold them long enough to get them stable, both physically and mentally to the point of accepting treatment and starting MAT in the hospital, um, they're that first dose just to keep them until we can transfer them, you know, either to an inpatient or outpatient, depending on the need, um, is really something that we're trying to push. It's great. Yeah. What about taking this to our 1,400 ERISA health centers that we have across the country? Been talking about it because we know that there's a benefit there. We know that there is, if we can get more of these centers to open, um, we, I truly believe that we can work on this issue together. Here's the last question for you. What's our obligation as a world leader to arm other countries with the knowledge of the opioid epidemic that's evolved and ravaged our country? need to respond two different ways. First off, um, we talk about this being an opioid addiction. Really what it is, is an addiction. Um, Generally speaking, it is an addiction crisis, not just opioids. In many parts of the country, and I know where you have so many listeners, there's also a methamphetamine addiction, an addiction to meth. Mm -hmm. So we have to make sure that we understand it's really an addiction crisis. But I just, as an example of working together across the entire globe, I just got back from Mexico two weeks ago and we were talking about the supply coming from Mexico, but I also met with their Secretary of Health, and I visited a treatment center in Mexico City, and we committed to sharing best practices with each other in terms of providing treatment and prevention. We can learn from our global partners how they're doing it. They can learn from us. It is mutually beneficial to figure out what's working and what's not. At the end of the day, we are going to save lives across the country, get rid of these traffickers, and make sure that we honor Sam's memory and so many other memories of our children by making sure that there aren't more families that grieve like yours, Greg. Director Carroll, I want to thank you for your time today. really appreciate it. Thank you. My guest today has been the director of the National Office of Drug Control Policy, or ONDCP, Jim Carroll, who shared highlights from the latest Office of Drug Control Strategy report that was released in February 2020. You can read the full report on our website at Cover2.org. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover2 Resources. For the latest on community events and our podcast series, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover2 Resources. That's Cover and the number two and resources. If you would like to learn more about this or any other program featured on our podcast series, please contact us at team at Cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 